Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. I have Sheila Gregoire back on today's episode. She's amazing. Sheila is a best-selling author, speaker, an amazing advocate for women all over the world. You can find her at baremarriage.com. She's recently come out with the best sex book in the world called The Great Sex Rescue. You can just go ahead and throw all your other sex books in the garbage. Make sure you read that. And today we're going to talk about the new books that she has coming out called The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and a companion Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. So we're going to talk about those two. Welcome, Sheila. Thanks so much for having me. And we had everyone listening. We had such a great time chatting before we even recorded this that like, hey, we're just besties. <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. Sheila does such great work and is so involved in advocating for women and for women to have great sex. And so I know that that's really triggery for our audience at times because our listeners have had terrible sex because they're married to abusive men. They're abusive in many ways. They're abusive in terms of psychological abuse, sexual coercion, but they've also been abused by the common sex advice that they've received from Christian books or other places where even just clergy, even society that's like, be more sexual and your husband will love you, stuff like that. So we're going to go over that today. So if when I say great sex, you get triggered and you're like, uh, I don't want to listen. Don't worry. This episode is for you. And we're going to talk about how to process some of that. And also the trauma that you've experienced from all of the bad advice that you may have received from these sex books and society over the years. So Sheila, the first version of Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex came out in 2012. You've learned a lot in the last nine years. Can you talk about why you wanted to do a second edition? When I first wrote it, I was in that culture, you know, that evangelical culture that said, men need sex and women want affection. And it's usually going to be the guy who's sexually frustrated. And women, what we really need to do is understand how much he needs it. And The Good Girl's Guide, the original one, didn't say that as much as a lot of the other books did, but there was an element of it there just because I was in that culture, you know? And I was never really comfortable with it. I always knew there was something wrong with it. And I was actually one of the first people to talk a lot about higher drive wives because I did a big survey back then too and found out how many women actually have the higher 
entire drive. And it's like they don't exist, like they're unicorns. No one ever talks about that. It's just, oh, he needs sex and she doesn't. But not always true. But, you know, the more that I learned and more importantly, the more that I listened to women, the more I realized that we were missing out on a huge part of the story. And that was actually the impetus for doing that huge survey of 20,000 women last year that led to the Great Sex Rescue. We wanted to understand, do some evangelical teachings hurt women? Just like you said, they can cause actual trauma. And we were able to measure that. Like we can now say, hey, if you believe that all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Yeah, it's no wonder you don't feel heard in your marriage. You're like 47% less likely to feel heard in your marriage or 59% less likely to feel like your opinions matter just as much as his. Like this has major repercussions everywhere. And we need to change the way we talk about it. When you start peeling back these layers of maybe Christian teachings that you get from sex books or just general clergy or even just societally, right? I mean, like people saying men have these needs or, you know, whatever, even if it's not coming from a Christian book. We have listeners to this podcast who aren't Christian, for example, agnostics or atheists, and they tell us the same thing. From a movie, they'll see that men have needs or maybe a movie that you saw that was your favorite. There was a man who was cheating and the woman was like, okay, I'm going to put on my sexy stuff and I'm going to get him back or win him back somehow. So this isn't just coming from these Christian authors, but I think it's more traumatic coming from that venue because you have some belief and trust that what they're telling you is true and it will help you. And if you follow their counsel or their teachings, that you're living this sort of godly life and it's God approved and that your marriage will improve because you think their goal is to keep my marriage together. Their goal is to have us have a happy family life. Yeah. I think one of the problems actually is that it steals our last place of safety. Like when we say God wants you to have sex with your husband so that he doesn't watch porn, then who do you go to now when you feel betrayed? Who do you go to now when you feel desperate? Like this is God sanctioned now. So you can't even pray. Like you have nothing left. They've stolen God from you too. <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of the source of trauma comes from. Well, and women aren't realizing that that's spiritual abuse they're not recognizing that it's spiritual coercion, essentially saying you're not a godly person if you don't give sex to your husband when you don't want to have it. And they're also not saying maybe you don't want to have it for a good reason, maybe because you don't feel safe, maybe because he's been lying to you. You know, there's no talk about that. Like maybe you have a really good reason not to have sex with someone who's not safe. And I think that's, that's the big difference is what is the aim of all of the advice. What are we actually working towards? And in the good guys guide and the good girls guide, what we're arguing is that what we're working towards is an emotionally healthy relationship, the way that we believe God intended. So we're working towards a sex life, which is intimate and pleasurable and mutual. Okay. So intimate, pleasurable, mutual, it's going to be emotionally healthy. And that means that you don't do things that are emotionally unhealthy, that are going to hurt someone. And yet, if you look at a lot of the advice that's often given in Christian circles and in the world, but just the advice out there, the aim is not necessarily emotional health. The aim is keep your marriage together or 
make sure he feels good or do this so that you will feel like a good wife. And it's not actually about health. And then should we really be surprised when people end up hurt? Yeah. So if you missed it, Sheila and I did two episodes a while back. One of them is called Three Toxic Myths That Harm Women. That one is excellent. You can go to our website, btr.org, and search that. It's Three Toxic Myths That Harm Women. Another one was entitled Sexuality 101 for Betrayed Women. In both of those episodes, we're talking at length about her book, The Great Sex Rescue. So if you're liking this interview, those are two episodes to go back and listen to. And speaking of that, it's almost like the goal was simply to make sure sure that women have sex with their husbands like that was the top priority because I think it it felt like the concern was heaven forbid a wife not have sex with her husband that is the like biggest problem in the world so why do men feel like this is so threatening to them that women have the right to be able to say no if you are not safe Yeah. You know, one of the things that we looked at in the great sex rescue is what are the outcome variables for a lot of these negative teachings? And I know that sounds like outcome variables, super academic, but basically what we meant was if you believe certain things, how can we measure the harm that it does or the good that it does? So for instance, if you believe women are obligated to give their husband sex when they want it, we know that marital satisfaction goes down, sexual pain rates go up, orgasm rates go down. If you believe you need to give your husband sex or he'll watch porn, same thing. Marital satisfaction plummets. Orgasm rates plummet. Same thing if you believe all men struggle with lust. Same thing if you believe women have to be the gatekeepers. So all of these things we know have negative outcomes in terms of marital and sexual satisfaction. But, and here's the crucial but, (laughs) they also have slightly higher frequency of sex rates. So if she believes these things, she's also more likely to have sex a little bit more frequently. Not like a huge amount. We're not talking like six times a week versus once a month. We're talking like, you know, 2.8 times a week instead of 2.3 or whatever. It's not a huge amount, but it does result in more frequent sex. And so the question that we had was, does this mean that evangelical leaders main measure of a healthy sex life is how often they have sex rather than how good the sex is and how good the marriage is and we would argue that yeah that's what it means they think frequency is everything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so so they think anything that would decrease frequency puts the marriage at risk or something is some kind of threat however what you're saying is the healthier your marriage is the more frequent it is but they won't accept that Yes. And so healthier marriages tend to result in more frequent sex overall, and they tend to result in happier people overall and all kinds of things. But that's just not looked at as a viable alternative. You and I were talking earlier about Gary Thomas's book, Married Sex, like before we started recording. (laughs) Gary Thomas, who's a really big bestselling author, he wrote books like Sacred Marriage and Cherish and all kinds of, he's got all kinds of bestselling books. In his latest book, which just came out in the fall, he was arguing that even though we shouldn't feel obligated to have sex with our spouses, we do need to realize that sex should be a sacrifice, at least some of the time. And you should have to give sex, even if you don't want to. 
And so it's like he's saying on the one hand that obligation sex is bad, but then on the other hand, he's saying women, just in the same way that you get up in the middle of the night and feed your newborn, even with your sore nipples and everything. So we need to consider the other person's needs. And so it's like he just can't get rid of this obligation sex message. And I was thinking about it, and I think it really comes down to the fact that deep inside, a lot of evangelical pastors, leaders, whatever, and probably a lot of people in the water culture too, just believe that women don't like sex. That if you give them the choice, they won't have it. That women are not sexual beings. They truly believe that. And so the only way to get women to have sex is to tell them they have to. And that's really what we're arguing against in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and the Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. Like we're trying to set the record straight and say, hey, look, sex is amazing for both of you. And guys, like obligation sex doesn't feel good and that's not what you want. And if you treat your wife like she has to give you sex in the long run, you will wreck sex. Yeah. Can I tell you the story about Bob? Tell me the Bob story. What about Bob? Okay. <laughs> His real name's not Bob. I just like that name. But anyway, he was a commenter on my blog and he was telling me his story. So they've been married for 40 years. So I'm assuming he's in his sixties. And he said, when they first got married, they would have sex several times a week and she always enjoyed it. Like he always made sure that she came to orgasm, but then he would say things like, I don't understand why we don't do this more often. It's so great. You like it so much. Why don't we do it more often? And he constantly said this to her. And over a series of years, she just started wanting sex less and less and less. And she still has an orgasm, but she has sex maybe once every six weeks. And he says, you know, I would be glad to give up my orgasm just so that I can give her pleasure, but she won't let me. And she doesn't understand that sex is how I feel intimate. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, so she's having sex several times a week with you and she's having a good time and she's reaching orgasm. And what do you do? You keep telling her that what she's doing is wrong and not good enough. And then you tell her that you don't feel intimate with her unless she's having sex with you. So that means that all of the times that she feels like she's connecting with you her way don't register with you. And so eventually she's just going to feel really cheap and she's going to stop wanting to have sex. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because what you do is when you treat a preference like a problem, you create a problem. And this woman simply didn't want sex as often. It wasn't that she didn't want sex. It wasn't that she didn't like sex. She just didn't want it quite as often. And he treated that like a problem and it created a problem. So this is a very interesting train of thought or a very interesting logistical problem that you're saying, because a lot of men say the same thing. A lot of abusive men, they say, there's no problem with me using porn or there's no problem with me um, watching football seven hours a day or whatever. And she's saying it's a problem and then it makes it a problem. It's a preference. And I think the interesting thing about this is that what that tends to say to women is you don't matter as much as I do. If I think it's a preference, it's fine. And you're trying to make it a problem. It's not really a problem. And if you have a preference, it's for sure a problem. And the one who gets to decide all this is the man, right? I get to decide how much we should be having or, you know, whatever. And Whatever my opinion is about it, either way, is just more valid than yours. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it even goes deeper than that. Because like we said earlier, what is the goal? If the goal is emotional health, then what we want is an emotionally healthy relationship. And an emotionally healthy relationship means that you connect not just sexually, but other ways as well. And what often happens today is that many men, either due to trauma when they're children, because that's very common, or simply due to the way that we raise boys to do with their emotions, tend to channel all of their emotions into sex and all of their drive for intimacy into sex. So they genuinely do not feel any drive for any kind of, of emotional intimacy or vulnerability because they have so walled off that part of themselves. And that is not healthy. So yeah, so they'll play video games for eight hours a day and then they'll want sex because then they can feel connected. And it's all about how they feel connected as opposed to connecting in an emotionally healthy way. And so we need to redefine what intimacy really is. Like one of my pet peeves is calling sex intimacy. Sex is not intimacy. Like they're not synonyms. And yet we treat them like they're synonyms. They're not synonyms. One of the most depersonalizing, dehumanizing, unintimate things is to have sex with someone who is not there with you who is fantasizing about someone else, who is obviously not thinking about you, who is using you. That is the opposite of intimacy. <laughs> Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. And now back to our conversation. I have been on very few dates um, since my divorce, but I did go on a date the other night. And in the course of the date, I said to him, you know, I don't care if I ever have sex or not. Again, I'm good with it either way. Like, it doesn't matter to me. If I never have sex again, it's fine. And apparently you're not supposed to say this on a date, Sheila. <laughs> And he spent the rest of the night mansplaining to me how this was not a way to talk to a man on a date. I was going to have a marketing problem, he said. And I said, well, if I'm not selling anything, then I don't really have a marketing problem. So I don't see what the problem is because I don't really care what you think about me having sex or not. Anyway, it was a very interesting exchange. And the more I think about it, you know, he was trying to tell me that this was not an okay thing to say. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, I'm going to say this on every first date because I genuinely am not motivated by sex at all. I want to be motivated by an intimate emotional relationship. And then if that leads to a sexual relationship sometime in the future, fine. But like sex is not my motivation. But it also led me to think that sex is this guy's motivation, right? This is what he sees as intimacy. And that's not really what I'm looking for. But it was just more of a like sign to me of that the sex is intimacy quagmire that modern society has sort of said to men, like it's the highest form of love or it's the way she shows me love or, you know, all that other stuff that gets women so confused because they feel like, well, I really do love him. So do I really need to do these things that I feel uncomfortable with? Or I do I really need to have sex with him in order to keep him from watching porn or, you know, that type of thing that just makes women so uncomfortable. 
You know, John Gottman said something really interesting in his book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And he said that he believes the next great stage in human development, like the next big breakthrough that we're going to make is men's emotional health. That right now, men as a whole, and this isn't me man bashing, this is just simply look at the stats. (laughs) If you measure relative emotional health, emotional maturity, that sort of thing, women outscore men almost universally. And by universally, I don't mean every woman. I mean, throughout classes, throughout ages, like different age, different demographic groups, women tend to do better than men. Now, obviously there are some men who are extremely emotionally healthy and there are some women who are not emotionally healthy, but just on the whole, in these different segments, women tend to outscore men. And he thinks this is what's changing. And I actually believe it. If you look at the way millennial dads parent and increasingly Gen Z, like how Gen Z dads, the really young ones parent, they're much more emotionally available and they're much more engaged with their kids. And I think we're going to see a big difference, but you know, this is something that we're really trying to bring home in both of our sex books, like both the one aimed at women and the one aimed at men is that sex does not replace intimacy. Sex is the culmination of intimacy. And often the reason that someone has this insatiable sex drive, they can never get enough. It's not actually their sex drive. The problem is they've so closed themselves off to any kind of emotional connection that anytime they have any emotion, it gets channeled into sex. So if they feel insecure, they need sex to make them feel better. If they feel bored, they need sex to make them feel better. If they're worried about rejection or stress, they need sex to sort of salve, you know, be a salve over the wound. And they're not turning to sex because they have this urge to feel close to you, they're turning to sex to soothe the wounds that they have yet to address properly. And sex can never cure someone's wounds they haven't addressed properly. Well, and in that case, the partner is just being used for them to feel better about themselves. It's not about connection. So when you said sex is the culmination of intimacy, like you said before, I also want to say in a healthy relationship, that is the case. Yes. And that's what I'm saying. Like sex is the culmination of healthy intimacy. It cannot produce it. Right. Yeah. It cannot produce it and it can make it worse if you've got all the unhealthy things going on. Right. So you have sex and it can make her feel more and more isolated. It can make her feel more and more used. It can create more and more feelings of resentment and sadness and all kinds of other things, which are miserable for her. Also probably miserable for him, but if he's just thinking about an orgasm, he's not going to notice much. Right. And again, you know, as I look back on the last 10 years, I didn't understand this as much. It's only been more recently that I've started really listening that I've understood how wrong a lot of our understanding of sex is. Because, you know, when I got married 30 years ago now, I believed that he needed sex to feel love because that's what everyone told me. And so if he said, I just feel like we never connect, I would feel so guilty. I would feel like he is experiencing a kind of rejection that I will never understand. I'm incapable of understanding how much he needs this because he's a man and I can't understand as a woman what a man goes through. And so no matter what I'm experiencing, what he's experiencing must be worse. 
because this is what we're told, right? And, you know, I played a part in teaching some of that, not a large part, and I never taught it in the same way, but I did say some of these things. And that's why I really wanted to rewrite The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Um, it's funny, Zondervan, my publisher, they contracted with my husband and me to write The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex because they wanted a companion book. And we were all for that because we just wanted to tell men how to do this in a healthy way. But I begged them to let me rewrite The Good Girl's Guide. And it was a bit of a fight because it was still selling really well. Like it's it's always sold well ever since it came out. But I was like, I can't, I can't sell it in all good conscience now that I've listened to people with that survey of 20,000. <laughs> like I've really changed the way I think about libido and the way I think about frequency and the way I think about intimacy. And so it went up several committees and they finally let me rewrite it. And I, did, I didn't get paid anything to do it. I wrote, I wrote an entirely new book. But I think we're getting healthier. Like I've been so encouraged by the discussions that have been happening. And I kind of feel like you and I are on different sides of the same discussion. You know, like how do we get to just what is healthy and how do we acknowledge what is harmful and deal with it appropriately? Yeah, I remember when I recognized that my sexual life was unhealthy. And so I stopped initiating sex, but I was the one who initiated it all the time. And I told my husband at the time, we're now divorced, I'm not going to initiate anymore. I got to figure myself out. I'm not blaming this on you. I just, I don't know. I've got to figure some things out. And then he never initiated. There was nothing. He never talked about it. He never said anything. It was just like it didn't exist. And I thought, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I've been initiating sex for seven years. And then I say, hmm, I've got to figure some things out. I'm not really having a good time anymore. You go ahead if you want to. And he never initiated it except for twice. And both times were just a disaster because it was in the moment where he had just like abused me emotionally or psychologically. And so I didn't feel safe. So I was kind of like, eh? and that's when he chose to initiate, which was very bizarre. So if I tell people that timeline, then you could probably say, you know, oh, well, she stopped having sex with her husband or she stopped initiating. They stopped having sex. And then within six months, he was arrested and then they got divorced. So was it my fault for stopping sex? And, you know, a lot of women might think this and they're afraid to set boundaries. They're afraid to say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have some needs here. I don't feel safe. I'm going to step back. They're afraid of this happening. They don't want their marriages to fall apart. Their marriages are top priority. And to these women, I want to say, if you take this route and you end up divorced like me, like, first of all, you're all listening to this. You might be afraid of it. I don't, I do not want you to get from my story. Like don't have sex with your husband equals divorce. I do not want you to get that impression or that feeling or that thought that like it's your fault or that you've done something wrong because the problem in my case was that I was not enjoying sex because I was being abused and I stopped having sex for good reason. And it was healthy for me to do so. And then I ended up divorced from my abusive spouse, which is not a bad thing. Even though I don't necessarily believe in divorce per se, I certainly don't believe in being abused. So a lot of people are like, divorce is the cause of, you know, all these problems or whatever. And I'm like, actually, abuse is the cause. Like, abuse is the problem. Abuse is the thing that is hurting you. So just get real clear about what is causing the problems? It's not necessarily you deciding, wait a minute, this isn't fun for me. 
the problem is the abuse itself, someone not actually seeing you as a real person, you not having an actual relationship, you're in some type of exploitative dance where you have the job of cooking and cleaning and being a sexual object, but like you're not actually being taken seriously as a human. Those would be actual real problems that need to be addressed. Sheila and I are going to pause our conversation right now and we will continue next week. So stay tuned. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there 